Well, let's get into this tonight. Just let me know when you're ready with the recordings and everything going. Both of them, yeah. You all agree with me. Lord, we pray over tonight. We're asking you that you um, come speak through me in glory and power, strong anointing, Lord, that your word will go out and let your Holy Spirit just really captivate people to give you their best year, their full attention, their focus. Lord, that even now that people begin to get locked into what you're saying and what you're doing. It's the the presence and the power of the Spirit of God locking people in and, and give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives to be ready and let this word go out through me, Lord, as living seeds of truth sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives watered by the Holy Spirit of God to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. And Lord, that you'll flow through this, let your light shine and dispel all the darkness and the lies and the deception of the enemy. Things that are not of you, pet doctrines, and bring truth. Let your word go out as the washing of the water of the word of God to cleanse people. Your sword cut away what needs to go. The hammer of your word to break down these strongholds. We commit this time to you and ask you to bless it. Let everything be accomplished through this time that your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I continue the series, this is part 15, Yom Teruah. This is the Feast of Trumpets. Yom is day, true as trumpets, okay? It's the day of the blowing of the trumpets. So this particular feast day has to do with the blasting of the shofar, okay? So I want you all, if you will, give me your best ear tonight and as, as little moving around as possible at this point. And let's just lock into this and get out of this what God has for you. This is, a, this is an important feast because this feast represents... The next thing on God's prophetic calendar, okay? That is the catching away of the bride. So that's this feast, the catching away. As God, as Jesus comes midair and his feet are not going to touch the Mount of Olives, at this time he's coming as a thief in the night. He's not coming to slaughter the enemies of Israel yet. He's coming as a thief in the night and he's going to catch away his bride. So... God thought enough of this, um, of the shofar rather, to make a feast day about it. Have you ever thought about that? God thought enough of the shofar to make a feast day about it. Let me give you some scriptures about the shofar in Psalms 81 verse 3. Blow the shofar at the new moon, at the full moon, and on the feast day. Because Israel was locked into a lunar calendar. And these had to do with their appointed times. There was the weekly Sabbath. There was the monthly new moon, which was the first of the month for Israel. So every first of the month, they would have a feast and they would blast the shofar. They would commit the coming month to the Lord. And of course, on the feast days, there were seven major feasts. Of course, two added later with Purim and Hanukkah. So Numbers 10.9, when you go to war in the land against your adversary who attacks you, then you will sound the alarm with the shofar that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and be saved from your enemies. And then um, that's supposed to be Nehemiah 4.20 there. Wherever you hear the sound of the shofar, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So this is a really powerful weapon of war, the shofar, Okay. And when you're dealing with the shofar, as I showed you last week in this 
prophetic calendar of events, Jesus came on Passover, his body was buried in the tomb on unleavened bread, he raised from the dead on first fruits. He was appearing to 500 people during the days of the counting of the Omer. Then on Pentecost, Shavuot, the Holy Spirit's poured out and the church is birthed. So all those feasts have been fulfilled. And then between the spring feast and the fall feast, you have this long summer interval. And this is what we've been in the, in the 2000 year uh, grace period. But we're about to see the fall feast fulfilled. The Lord will catch away his bride. And then the next feast, Yom Kippur, has to do with the earth going through the tribulation time, the difficult time, the days of Jacob's trouble. The bride will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then after that, the last feast, Sukkot, this is tabernacles, the Lord will come down and he will enter Jerusalem and he will rule and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. So this is God's prophetic timeline. And this is the next thing right here, the Feast of Trumpets. How many are excited about the coming of the Lord? So every time this feast comes around, and here we are blasting the shofar. As a matter of fact, even blasting the shofar just throughout the year, I think about this feast, and I think about when the Lord comes for his bride. So let me give you some things about this. There's an idiom in um, the Hebrew culture about no man knows the day nor the hour except the Father. You guys remember that when I talked about the Jewish um, ancient wedding, you remember how that the bride and the bridegroom, all this would play out. There would be a man that would go out by the well because the women's job was to draw water. He would see a young lady he wanted to betroth, so he would go to her father, <clears throat> and he would give a dowry, and the father would set the price. And then, you know, after this was done, there would be a cup of wine that was poured, set on the table. And she had to drink of that if she agreed to the contract. She agreed that she wanted to marry him because they wanted to give her a choice in this as well. And so as she did that, that is prophetically, that cup is, um, I believe, the communion table for us. This is our betrothal cup. Every time we take communion, I think of the fact that we are his bride and we're going to keep ourselves for him, okay? And we're looking for his coming. And even about the communion cup, you think about, um, it says, do this in remembrance of me until I come, okay? So we're looking for his coming. So then after she drank the cup that was set before, the young man was now excited because he's engaged. She would begin to put a veil on, and she would begin to go around keeping herself pure for him, that wearing that veil showed that she belonged to somebody, and she was off limits to everybody else, okay? So in the same way, we are betrothed, we're engaged to the Lord, and we don't belong to anybody else. And that young man would go, and he would begin to prepare a place for her. He could be gone up to two years, but she would go, he would go rather, and he would go to his father's house and begin to build a bridal chamber onto that house, and the father would oversee his work, and then whenever it was time, the father knew the time. But nobody else knew. And so it became an idiom in Jewish culture that no man knows the day nor the hour but the father. And so once the father saw that it was time, he would tell his son, it's time, go get your bride. The friends of the bridegroom would run in front. They'd be blasting the shofar. They'd be rejoicing. They'd be shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes. They would go in the middle of the night. It was the culture. 
and they would steal her away out of a window in the middle of the night. And they would go to the wedding. And so then there would be a big wedding that was put on, and the bride and groom would stand together underneath a chopa covering, and they would be betrothed together, and then they would go consummate their marriage, and then for seven days they would celebrate. And so it was an awesome time. And that's exactly how it's going to play out, metaphorically speaking, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and when he comes, he's going to catch us away. And for seven days, that seven year um, during the earth going through a tribulation, we're going to be with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb during those seven years. So it became that saying in Israel that no man knows the day nor the hour but the Father. And that's where that came from. And that's why Jesus used that analogy. And also, no man knows the exact day nor the exact hour regarding even Yom Teruah because of all the feast. This one feast is determined by looking at a new moon, and as soon as that new moon began to crescent, that's whenever the feast would begin. So here's the interesting thing about this. The average people did not keep up with the feast days. Uh, They couldn't. They were busy about their life. I mean, as far as... Uh, the details of it. I, I'm sure that they had a general idea. There's no doubt about that. But the Kohanim, the priest, were the ones that kept up with the details. And what they did around this time, Yom Teruah, which is called Rosh Hashanah today, but that's not what the Bible calls it. The Bible calls it Yom Teruah, okay? During the Bible times, they would have witnesses that would be up on the mountains. And these witnesses were there, and they would keep their eye on the sky, and they were looking, because as soon as that moon began to crescent, they were witnesses, and they would begin to build a bonfire, and the priests that were down below, they would see the fires begin to go off, and they knew that it was time, and they would begin to blast the shofar, and that's how the feast would begin. So no man knew the exact day or the hour. It was determined on when these witnesses saw it. And how many knows there's a lot of parallels about this? Because Jesus said that there would be signs on the earth and signs in the heavens. And when you see these signs begin to appear, look up, your redemption draws nigh. So there's some interesting parallels in this. And even with the moon itself, because the Bible says before the coming of the Lord, he said, I will turn the moon to blood and the, and the sun to sackcloth. This has to do with lunar and solar eclipses. In 2014 and 15, we had some very significant ones. But isn't it interesting that God used that as a sign before he comes? And in this feast, people are looking at the moon to determine when this feast takes place. Are y'all seeing the parallels? And not only that, but whenever it was time for this feast to begin, those fires would be built. And one of the things about these last days, the Bible said the end of the age is the harvest. And God said, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's going to be great revival fire burning in the earth in these last days before the Lord comes. So all of this is symbolic. And you can see the parallel here, how God is showing us that, that this is a feast that's to come. It has to do with the coming of our King. We look for the bridegroom to come and catch away his bride. And so here's some things. I told you the betrothal cup, but also we take that third cup of the Passover meal throughout the year in communion, but we're looking what? We're looking for the fourth cup, 
that we're going to take with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. At Yom Teruah, even to this day, it's traditional that there will be at least a hundred shofar blasts that will take place in every synagogue around the world. This is the civil new year when Israel celebrates it as a new year, but it's not the biblical new year. The biblical new year is two weeks before Passover. God gave them two weeks to get all the leaven out of their house before they celebrated Passover. That was the new year in the Bible. But today this is celebrated as the new year. And I find it interesting, and I can't help but think, how the spring feast had been fulfilled and how now it's in the fall that people celebrate a new year and these fall feasts are about to be fulfilled. I can't help but wonder if that's not prophetic somehow. And we know the power of the blasting of the shofar, how it helps to purge everything out, the satanic, the what's, you know, strongholds, things of the enemy. It helps to purge that out. It helps to confuse the enemy and destroy his works. It helps to bring the glory of the Lord in and establish Christ's rulership over a location where the shofar's blasted. At least that's what it symbolizes. And I can't help but think how the Bible says that the Lord's coming for a bride without spot or blemish. And how the shofar helps to purge out the atmosphere and drive back the dark forces for the Lord to come dwell and prepare a bride for his coming. Some of the things that concern me, though, in the body of Christ is I do see, by and large, across the board, I do see a, a lack of discernment on a very high level. Not, not on a low level, on a very high level, a very concerning level. And I believe, with all my heart, at least in America, it has to do with more than anything else, the fact that people are too lazy to pray. Individually and corporately. Got real quiet. But end time spirits, the Bible talks about in these latter days, they were going to be fierce times, perilous times, difficult times. These are times that there's going to be tremendous spiritual warfare. But there are also going to be times that are going to be very glorious because the Lord is going to be moving with great power. And he's going, to see, he's going to draw in a great harvest. These are glorious times, but they're also going to be challenging times. I think we all can understand that reading the scriptures. But you have end time dark satanic spiritual forces like the Jezebel spirit, like Leviathan, Python, which is a counterfeit, a religious spirit. <clears throat> a religious spirit, religion is a stronghold, a structure of death. It creates spiritual death. And many times where there's religious spirits, there's stubborn chronic health issues. But there's just, it's a stronghold of death. And God wants us to have all that religion broken off and there be a flow of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life. Also, there's going to be seducing and deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons that are very strong. And we need to discern these things. How many would agree with me that this is a time to not be shrinking back from discernment? This is a time that we better sharpen our discernment. And here's what I see by and large, because people don't have the personal relationship, and I'm not talking about accepting Christ as your Savior, that's wonderful, okay, that's how we're going to get into heaven, but because they refuse to really have a strong prayer life, 
They don't have discernment, and they don't know for themselves what's God and what's not. They really don't. And so what they do, by and large, they follow crowds. They follow where the money is, and they follow charismatic personalities, but they do not follow the Spirit of God or the Word of God. Can you shut that, please, for me? They follow crowds and money. They follow other things. And I don't want my life being manipulated by the enemy. Is anybody getting this tonight? I don't want the enemy dictating where I'm at, what I'm doing, about anything. I want to hear from God and be in the center of God's will. And unfortunately, behind the scenes, there's some, there's some things that are, that are large and all that that's wonderful, that's really good, honestly. But there's also some things that are very bad behind the scenes. It's not about what people make it about. They think, well, surely all these people are over here. Surely with all this money and all this charismatic personality and all this, this, this wonderful, beautiful building and all this stuff, surely this is God. Hello? Since when does that determine if something's of God or not? I mean, last time I checked, things like the Taj Mahal was a beautiful edifice, but it doesn't mean that it's of God. I would have thought, and I say this with a, with a humble, right heart about it, but I really would have thought there'd been more people that were touched in times past and revival that would be helping us pray for revival right now. I really would have thought that. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if I was going to start a church and, and we were going to be praying and seeking God, you know, wouldn't, you, wouldn't there be revival people that'd be coming? And, and I really would have thought this with every fiber of my being. I, I would have thought we'd had a lot of support. But, man, God has had to touch people and save people and, and send revival in people and bring them in here. But here's what I've seen, and I say this out of love and concern. But a lot of people that I know of that were touched powerfully in revival in times past, believe it or not, some of them are not even in church today. Others have allowed their godly convictions that they once had to wane. And they're doing things they wouldn't have done back then. And others, and this this surprises me probably the most, others have settled in to a place where God's not moving at all. There's no gifts at work. They don't have the laying on of hands. There's no demonstrations of the Spirit's power. The presence of God really coming in, real strong and powerful, is not there. But yet they've settled into that place, and they're comfortable there, and they're lukewarm now. The deception of lukewarmness. I'll tell you a good definition, if I can say it this way, about being lukewarm. You used to be really on fire for God and hungry for God. You used to be excited about going to church and couldn't wait to get there. You used to have a prayer life. You used to devour the Word of God. You used to be thinking about, during this week, I'm going to witness to people. You used to be about those things, but now, all of a sudden, you've settled into a place where you're pretty comfortable without that. That's lukewarm. And let me just tell you what Jesus said. I would rather you be hot or cold than to be lukewarm. 
But because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit. That's what that means, vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, it makes him nauseous. That people could be touched with the fires of revival, that God could do such a deep uh, burning in their heart and to see them now walk away from that and get comfortable in a lukewarm condition. It's scary, friend. And in that lukewarm place, people stop seeking the Lord. And over and over, you read in the scriptures where Jesus said, watch and pray because you don't know the day nor the hour. Who's Jesus coming for? A bride that's made themselves ready. What was his warning? You better watch and you better pray. You better draw into a relationship with him. Wise virgins with extra oil. How many have ever seen a bride that's, that's bored waiting for the wedding? Of course not. They're excited looking for the marriage to come. But people get complacent. They lose the fire. It's a very dangerous place to be spiritually because Satan will try to fill that vacuum that was once in your life that was full of the fire of God. He'll try to fill that vacuum with something else. And the Bible says in Hebrews 5, 14, but solid food is for the mature who by practice have trained their senses to discern good from evil. Even a baby Christian can read this and know it's not talking about your physical senses. It's just talking about your spiritual inner senses that you've learned by constant prayer and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and by knowing the word and you've developed your inner man to where you know when something's of God and it's not. You can sense it. It's a spiritual knowing. And if somebody doesn't know what I'm talking about, man, that's, that's not good. You need to pray that God will help build up your inner man to discern what's good and what's evil. You, we should know for ourselves. We shouldn't have to have somebody else tell us. This comes by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives and knowing God's presence. I know the Holy Spirit enough now I know his presence, I know his voice, I know his anointing, I know his leading, and I know his gifts. And when something is of strange demonic spirit, I can tell. Why? Because I know him. And we have to know the Bible for ourselves. You can't blindly follow people. Know the word. But also know the Lord of the word. Some people just read a book, but they don't have any relationship with the Lord. It's in that glory, in that realm of God's presence, that's where revelation comes. Praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues, that's where revelation comes. As you study the Word of God in the presence of God, that's where revelation comes. We're going to have to get beyond. This may not make any sense to some people. I pray that they'll understand it one day. But you cannot understand God in the flesh. And you cannot understand God even in your own human intellect. He's bigger than that. I don't care how smart you think you are. God's bigger than your intellect. You have to know God by the Spirit. Jesus said, the Lord is the Spirit. And there's a relationship, Spirit to Spirit, where you know the Lord. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell in us? He dwells in our inner spirit, man. And that's the realm of revelation. Too many people try to traffic in a realm of just their human intellect and their human emotions, but you're only going to know God so much that way. 
you, you actually, you know more about him that way than you actually know him that way. And so what I feel about this feast more than anything else is there is a call of the Holy Spirit for a bride to be made ready for the coming of the Lord. All right, let me share just briefly about the tallit, the prayer shawl. As I'm dealing with communion Hebrew roots, and many times you'll see as the shofars are blasted, you'll see people have some kind of a prayer shawl on. I'm just going to read over this pretty quickly. But in the beginning, God said, let there be light. But then after that, the sun and moon and stars were talked about. So the light that was created in the beginning had to do with God's glory. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory. A lot of people don't even know what the glory is. The glory is God's manifest presence. And the Bible says in Psalms 104 verse 2 that God wraps himself with light as a garment. And so it kind of stands to reason when God put Adam and Eve in the garden he said, I make man in my image, male and female. That if he made him in his image and he wraps himself with light, even though they were physically naked, that there was some kind of a wrapping around them of God's glory. And that seems to be what the case is, because if you read Genesis, the Genesis account of the fall, you read that they were naked and not ashamed at first. And the word there for naked is arom, A-R-O-M. But in Genesis 3, when they ate of the fruit and they fell, it says they were naked and they were ashamed. So what happened? The word there for naked is E-R-O-M. It's a different word. And arom, E-R-O-M, means completely nude. But the first, the first word, A-R-O-M, just means partially nude. So what in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened that garment of light, that glory that enveloped them, lifted off of them. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. So the glory lifted when they sinned. And then they were completely, totally nude, and they were ashamed. And then instead of going out and being constructive with their time, sewing together some big leaves like some elephant ears, they decided to try to sew together fig leaves. They weren't thinking straight, you know, they were nervous. Fig leaves are really small. But God has always had some kind of a covering. I'm trying to go somewhere with this. God wraps himself with light as a garment. Okay, whenever he created Adam and Eve, he created them with some kind of a wrapping around them. And we see that as soon as God took Moses and brought him out of Egypt and brought him up to Mount Sinai, the very first thing God did was create a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there was an outer court that was open, but in the tent, there was a covering that wrapped that entire tent area. There had to be a ceiling on it, okay? It was an enclosure. You had to go in there to see what was in there. And this was called the Mishkin. And you also see, even to this day, at Jewish weddings, you see a chuppah, which is just a, a covering over the bride and groom. But God wants to overshadow and wrap his people in his glory. 
And before the coming of the Lord, the Bible says very clearly that the glory of the Lord would be seen upon God's people in Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord will be seen upon you. So there's going to be a manifestation of God's glory in these latter times. We need the glory of God in these end times. I believe that with all my heart. The glory of the Lord where his manifest presence is, there's a protection. Isaiah, I believe it's 4 around verse 6. But it says that God would purge the bloodstains from Jerusalem. He would purify. He would clean, cleanse all the sin away. And after he did that, he said the glory would be over all like a canopy. I believe the scriptures bear it out very clearly that God can overshadow his people with a glory fire, a protection from the evil that were around. And just like Obed-Edom in the Bible, when the ark was brought into Obed-Edom's house, even though he was a Gentile, Obed-Edom's house, the ark was brought in, and what happened? His whole household began to prosper because of the glory. We're living in times that because of God's manifest presence in our midst, I believe with all my heart that there's going to be supernatural provision, but it's going to be in the glory and because of the glory in our midst. There's going to be healing in the glory. I'll never forget John Paul Jackson before he died had a prophecy. And he said that he saw that there would be places in the earth before the Lord comes. That it would be like there would be a hole in the sky, but there would be this pillar of the glory. And that glory would be so strong and so intense that anybody, and he said anybody, saved or not, anybody that came into that glory would be affected immediately. He saw sicknesses leaving people. But Jesus is coming, and he wanted to gather Israel. He said, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers a chick under her wings. He was wanting to overshadow Israel with his glory. But they rejected him. We know the story. In the book of Ruth, if you understand the, the Hebrew roots and the culture, Ruth was asking him to be a kinsman redeemer to marry her. But she said, take the corner of your garment and wrap it over me, which would have been his prayer shawl, his tallit. Because even to this day in a marriage ceremony, there is a tallit that is wrapped around the bride and groom when they get married. This is the glory. I'm trying to use this as an analogy here. God, Jesus, is wanting to wrap us in his glory. In Matthew 6, 6, where Jesus said, go into your prayer closet. There wasn't really closets back then if you study it out. It would have to be a very wealthy person to have several rooms used just for that. He was speaking more metaphorically than anything else. Because people would pray publicly back then. They would go to the temple and there'd be all these people there publicly praying. But what was it that separated the men? You would see that they would wrap up in that prayer shawl and that was like their personal closet. That was their secret place with the Lord. And little Samuel, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Hannah is barren. She comes to the, the tabernacle. And she's crying out to God to get pregnant. Eli thinks she's drunk. Remember the story. Eli comes out, though, and he prays for her. Eli is really a, a powerful man of God in many ways. He just had some issues in his life he didn't deal with. But he spoke a, a blessing over her and prayed for her. And she went home and she got pregnant. And she said, I'm going to dedicate this baby Though she was from Ephraim, I'm going to dedicate this child to the Lord. 
And she brought little Samuel when he was old enough, and I'm sure she made him some little clothes, you know, right? Got out of her little old sewing machine, made him some little clothes, some little priestly garments, right? Brings him up to Eli and gives him to him, and Eli begins to train Samuel. And this breaks every protocol that there is, but it's spirit-led. How many knows when you're led by the Lord? Just like David and his men eating the consecrated bread. That was supposed to be a big no-no, but he got away with it. And Jesus referenced that, okay? This right here would have been the biggest no-no there is. He takes somebody from Ephraim, not even of Aaron's family, and sticks him in the Holy of Holies by the ark. But Eli knew that little Samuel, innocent and pure little Samuel, if he could get him to sleep in the glory, he knew that in the glory, revelation would start coming in his life. He would begin to hear God's voice. He would begin to be changed and God would make him a mighty man of God, which is exactly what happened. I believe with all my heart there's something about this tallit, this prayer shawl. Doing something over and over seems to create an open heaven. One of my favorite scriptures is in James. It says that in the King James, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous men avails much. But I like to amplify. It says the prayers of the righteous... It's the, listen, it's the heartfelt, continued prayers. Heartfelt, continued prayers of the righteous makes tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. So as you do something over and over, it's heartfelt and it's continued. It's like you're, you're piercing through. You're, you're clearing the skies above. This open heaven did not happen overnight. Oh, that it would have. But it was persistent, heartfelt prayer over a long period of time to get the skies purged. But I can just see how uh, Jesus, for example, wore that tallit day in and day out and prayed, went to the temple. And something started soaking into that tallit of his. Y'all follow me? The Apostle Paul was under such a mighty anointing in the book of Acts chapter 19 that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were brought to him had touched him. Think about this. They were taken to the sick probably miles away and put on the sick and the sick were healed and demons left people. There was something that got in those cloths. You know what it was? It was the anointing and it was the glory of God. And Jesus wearing that tallit day in and day out and praying in it, the glory got in that tallit, the anointing got in that tallit. And here he is walking in, in this woman with an issue of blood and she's unclean. I mean, back in those times under law, she was continually and perpetually ceremonially unclean. So she had to live a life secluded because of this illness. And she was so desperate, and she probably knew the scriptures in Malachi says that the son of righteousness would arise with healing in his wings. And of course, if you hold up a tallit, it looks like wings. And she knew that there was something about the, the tassels, and the Hebrews called the tzitzit, it's the tassels there. And she goes through there, and she lays hold, she grabs the corner of his garment, that tassel, and healing virtue flowed from that tallit from Jesus into her. And Jesus felt it leave, and she was healed. It's not an isolated incident. Matthew 14, 36 records that many people came and asked Jesus just to touch the corner of his garment, which was the prayer shawl, and it's where those tassels were, and they were healed. In fact, in Mark 5, 41, we all know the story where the little girl was dead, and Jesus goes in, he says she's just asleep, and they all laughed at him, of course. 
And so he takes just Peter and John in with him. But it says specifically, it's referenced these words that he said to her, Talitha Koum, to rise little girl. But you can see in those words, Talit, and many Bible scholars think that maybe Jesus took off his Talit and laid it on her and told her to rise. And Jesus, whenever he was on the cross, the soldiers took that one garment of his that was seamless And many believe that was his talit, and they refused to divide it, and they cast lots for it. Why? Probably because they heard about it having miraculous power, so to speak. They didn't want to divide it up. But there's something about the talit. Even to this day, people come underneath the talit to speak a blessing or receive a blessing. I had a pastor friend of mine I've known for years. He's, He's a powerful man of God. And a traveling evangelist came through and gave him a tallit one time in a service. And he said he keeps it in his office, and sometimes when he's really got some serious needs before the Lord, he'll, he'll put that on, and he'll just come down on his desk, and he'll begin to pray. And he said every time he's done that, he's had answered prayers. And he said he really believes there's something to that. Toronto, the great Toronto revival, around 4 million people came through that church. It's been, it was such a powerful, explosive move of God. Lives were changed all over the world. But one of the things that Toronto was known for was the fact of really soaking in God's glory. There was this one guy that brought to the pastor there, John and Carol, brought him one of these old, some of you might have seen this. I remember seeing this in school in science. They either had one in there or they brought one. Somebody was playing with it. But it had a crank and you could hold the wires and they crank it and it'll electrocute you. You guys ever seen it? All right. Anyway, so they brought one of those. It was some old thing. And they were doing that. And, but the faster you crank it, the more power voltage comes. <laughs> and so that's where they got the phrase in the Toronto Revival to amp it up. You know, that God's increasing his power. But during that revival, the glory of God was so strong that people began to, you know, collapse around the power of God. And they'd be there for hours. And the pastor's wife said that her whole life was totally transformed in these times of just soaking in the glory. You know what that glory is? I'm trying to make this point. The glory of the Lord is Jesus' tallit over his bride. Jesus is just simply wrapping us in his presence. But anyway, the pastor's wife Carol, she said that her whole life was changed. There was so much healing, so much freedom that came, soaking in the glory. But see, a lot of people are too busy for that. I'm not saying this to offend anybody, but you make time for what's important. You make time for your favorite TV show. You make time for the things you want to do. But if we, if we really were on fire for God like all of us need to be, we'd make time to spend with him. So anyway, as she would soak in that glory, and out of that revival, I'll never forget because this really spoke to me. They, they had put together this thing called a soaking kit that you could buy. And what this was, was I know it was funny sounding, but it was really powerful. They had a, a powerful anointed worship CD. It had like a little you know, pillow for your head, and it had a blanket, okay? <laughs> and so you see all these people buying this, and they were just soaking in God. But let me tell you, before you laugh too hard, it sounds funny. But there were houses that were devoted just to 
people coming and they'd put on worship and people would just soak in the glory. And I'm going to tell you something, whole lives were totally transformed in the presence of God. You can't tell me that being in God's presence and soaking in his presence won't change you because I know better. So you get a bunch of people that are just willing just to lay there and soak with Jesus and spend time with him and quietly talk to him and listen to him and be in his presence. You're going to be different. And what they were doing without probably even thinking about or realizing it, that blanket, it was like, symbolically speaking, was like a tallit. People were just kind of wrapping up in the Lord, so to speak. I'm speaking symbolically here. But the glory, his manifest presence would come upon them. One pastor said this, that he would pray under a person, he said it felt like to him, it was like God just giving him a hug of his presence. Let me tell you, the Lord loves us more than we realize. You know, God is love, and I don't think any of us are really going to understand the depth of God's love in this life, in this fallen condition. We get an idea, but when we see him, we'll really know him, and we'll really understand his love for us. All right, so this is how I want to close this out. So this feast has to do with the signs of the end times and us looking up for the coming of the Lord. A bride being made ready for Christ's coming. That we are betrothed to him. And we're keeping ourselves pure. Because once that young lady was engaged and she wore that veil, she was saying, leave me alone. I'm just for him. I'm off limits to anybody else. And that's the way we need to be living here, isn't it? We're off limits to anybody else but Jesus. All right, so this is how I'm going to close it. First Thessalonians 4.13 but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, and those who are brethren about those who have fallen asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet, the shofar of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is what we're looking for. When Yom Teruah comes this September or whatever, when it comes, that's, that's the feast that we're looking for, the coming of the Lord. What I'm trying to say in this is God loves us more than we can understand. He wants to spend time with us more than we know. He created mankind for fellowship. If there's a, a glitch somewhere in the relationship, it's not on his end. <laughs> we can't blame him. And so he's longing to be with people. He loves us more than we're ever going to understand in this life. And he's wanting simply to wrap us up in his glory like a tallit and draw us into him. What we need to do is do what the Bible says and draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto us. Let's press into him and let God begin to put a new fire in us. When the glory of God begins to wrap up his people, that's where a lot of change is going to happen. How many of you guys want to be protected? In these latter days, the glory will be a defense. The glory will be something. Paul said in Romans 13, the armor of light. I believe that there is an armor of light, but I believe it's the glory. Where the glory of God begins to envelop our lives. And I'm convinced of this. The Bible says if you're a secret place dweller, you can abide under the shadow of the Almighty. 
What does abide mean? Abide. So that means that we're going to continually abide under the shadow. I believe that people that are secret place dwellers, that there's no reason why you can't go throughout your day in the presence of the Lord. Like Enoch, there's no reason. It's a promise in the scripture. The Lord is wanting to envelop us in his glory, his presence, where there's going to be protection. Like Obed-Edom, there's going to be supernatural prosperity, and it's going to be a place of divine health. But it comes in the glory of the Lord, his presence. So even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look for your coming. So we think about Yom Teruah, the blasting of the shofar. We think about Jesus, your coming for your bride to catch us away. And we want to be ready when you come, Lord Jesus. Stir up a fire in people once again. Put a hunger. Or where those that's maybe grown lukewarm, they don't have the burden for souls they used to. They don't, they're not, they don't have that passion for the things of God. The only way we're going to keep these things in the latter days is to stay close to the Lord in prayer anyway. But Lord, I pray, rekindle that flame in people. Draw them into you in Jesus' name. Let it come. All right, let's go ahead and shut down recordings and we'll pray for people who want prayer tonight. But I'm going to believe God for his glory to begin to increase in our midst, in our lives. I'm going to tell you, there's no reason why the glory of the Lord cannot be in your home. The glory of God can be in our home. The glory of God can settle over you when you sleep at night and you can rest in the glory. The glory of the Lord can overshadow you when you pray. And the glory of the Lord should be in our church services. The only reason they're not, the only reason the glory is not is because people are okay without it. They don't want to deal with the sin. They don't want to put the house in order. And they don't want to pray. They don't want to press into God to have it. 